Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 2 today, an appropriate section of Scripture to move to. The Gospel of Luke chapter 2. I want to move through the first 14 verses of that. It's an unusual opportunity to say Merry Christmas and Blessed Lord's Day. This is a, a grand moment for us in that Christmas is falling on the Lord's Day this year. And of course, uh, it's somewhat hard to remember the sequence of when that actually occurs. Uh, you would think that it happens every seven years, and sometimes we say that. I even said that in the last few days, but it actually averages that it happens once every seven years because leap year kind of messes it up a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, you would have to be a sort of a mathematician to be able to figure out when the next time is that Christmas is going to fall on the Lord's Day, but it's coming. Uh, for those of you who are math whizzes, and one of my sons married a math whiz, two of my sons married math whizzes. I'll let you figure out who the third one is. Uh, but at any rate, in a 28-year period of time, Christmas is going to occur on the Lord's Day an average of seven years. The next year that it will happen is actually 11 years from now. And then it will follow again with the sixth year, then the fifth year, and then back to the sixth year. So I know it's been somewhat traumatic for kids who have left their gifts behind. And I know it's somewhat a hassle for the cooks of the family to leave their kitchens behind. And it might have been a disruption to some of your Christmas traditions but you'll have 11 years to get over the trauma of it all. <laughs> and uh, I think by then we'll be okay. You know, the world is fast-paced, to say the least. And some of those conditions we bring upon ourselves, and some of them are pressed upon us. Maybe none quite so much like Christmas. The hustle and bustle of it, as it's described, is pretty accurate, isn't it? But it wasn't any different on the first Christmas uh, that Mary and Joseph experienced. Uh, they had, as you know, go ba gone back to their hometown, the town of origin for their family, uh, which was required by decree from Caesar Augustus that everybody would go to the origin place of their family to be registered. Joseph and Mary were both descendants of David, so they traveled to that home origin of Bethlehem for him, uh, for them, for he was of the house of David. The journey would take about 90 miles as you would travel from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. And although we don't know the exact journey that they would take, there's really on a couple of possibilities that they could do so. Probably left Nazareth and moved down to Bethshehan and then over to the Jordan Valley right along the river there to the west of that. And as they were moving down that central valley of the Jordan River, they would end up to the northern portion of the Dead Sea. It's a desert plain there, about a 1,000 feet below sea level. And I can tell you from experience, it's hot. Probably from there moved to the west, just past Jericho, and would make that long journey up to Jerusalem. 
It's what Jesus has described as being tempted in the wilderness. It's a desert, arid plain, and then a mountainous region, lots of rocks, lots of hills, lots of mountains to climb. In fact, from that location, they would actually have to journey some 3,500 feet up Mount Zion to get to Jerusalem before they would pitch down five and a half miles to Bethlehem. A difficult journey, no doubt, for anyone, but particularly for one who is pregnant, probably in the latter stages of her pregnancy. To give you a little bit of an idea of what that would be like, it would be like you and me hiking up Mount Chihaw twice while pregnant, expecting delivery soon. Obviously, a difficult journey for Joseph and Mary. Normally, the journey would take uh, a few days, probably four, maybe five days as they would travel, but not so much for Joseph and Mary, for they were a little slower in the process since she was expecting child. That journey was so unique, so difficult, no doubt, but it was a foretaste of what was coming. As Joseph and Mary would ascend that Mount of Zion and then pitch down towards Jerusalem, they would come down the mountainside of the Mount of Olives and move toward the eastern gate of Jerusalem. It would be the same place that Jesus would walk 33 years later as he descended on Palm Sunday into the great triumphant entry just days before his death and resurrection. That journey that Joseph and Mary would take into Jerusalem before heading off that five miles into Bethlehem was the same journey that Jesus would take as well. Just as the crowd would forsake Jesus in the latter days of his life, so they forsook Mary and Joseph as Mary was carrying the Christ child within her. Just as inhospitable they were for Mary, so they were for the boy some three decades later as he was there in the same place. The world proved antagonistic to the Son of God, both in his mother's womb and in his own life, calling for his death. Now let's go to Luke chapter 2 and just read back through the narrative that you're familiar with, but I think does not grow old. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Maybe you're reading out of a different translation than the ESV. Maybe yours says something a little differently there called the guest room. There was no room for them in the guest room. Kataluma is the word in the original language. In verse 8, the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I'm going to make three simple statements today, give a little bit of commentary to them. First, Christmas came at the perfect time. Uh, Luke says it pretty simply, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, Luke's statement is obviously one that communicates the physical reality of Mary, who had completed her pregnancy, but he's writing way more than that, not just that Mary's pregnancy had completed in time, but he's writing, I think, about this march of history that had been moving forward in this monumental time that was now upon them, the birth of the Messiah. The Bible states that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world and made manifest to us in these last times for our sake. So God set his redemption in place from eternity past, even before the world was formed and mankind was created. And God made that known throughout history through his word and prophets. His grace and mercy was being communicated. There with Adam and Eve present, God announced that there would be an offspring coming of woman who would defeat Satan. Then God made a covenant to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, turning us from wickedness. He reaffirmed that covenant with Abraham's son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, saying, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Confident of God's covenant, Jacob blessed his son Judah the family from which the Messiah would come, saying, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. Through Isaiah the prophet, God declared, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And God built great anticipation for the people of Bethlehem, saying, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be, to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, ancient of days. In other words, God had been speaking his prophecies, some 300 of them, all about Christ Jesus, each precisely fulfilled in our Lord. He foreknew and he foreplanned every detail, including the appointed time for Mary to give birth. So when Luke says that the time came, it was fulfilled, he's speaking a lot of depth and truth there. Until the fullness of time, the generations have been longing for the Messiah one of the passages that I have not been able to get off my mind over the last couple of weeks as we've been anticipating the Christmas season is Galatians chapter 4. These two verses in 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that, so that we might have adoptions, uh, receive adoption as sons. How many of you are going to gather together today with family and eat? Oh, good for you. <laughs> Can I challenge you? Bring your Bible to the table and open it to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. And you just simply say this, hey, before we eat today, let's be mindful about what Christmas is and speak this verse, these two verses, and just bring that forward to the table. You don't have to elaborate. Just let God's word be God's word. It won't return to him void. Just utter that out to your family today. See what God will do with that. God is unconfined by time. He's always on time, always perfect, unfolding his mercy and grace and justice and provision at the right time, the perfect time, in order that we would experience goodness and he would receive his glory. Now, in his sovereign power, God has moved the rulers of the world to bring about the fulfillment of his purposes, his redemptive plan. He stirred in the mind of of Caesar Augustus, that everybody should be registered, everybody should be taxed. So bring them to their family of origin, the very place that the prophets had said the, the Messiah would be born. And so Joseph and Mary migrated towards that pre-announced place where the Messiah would be born. God determined to affect the entire world so that the prophecies would be fulfilled that he spoke throughout history. We can be confident that nothing about Jesus was by chance. Everything was well planned from eternity past. And God's plan was being brought about so that it might bring the fulfillment of his word and our salvation unto him. Now listen, friends, I want you to know this on this Christmas day. God is in the details of your life as well. And God's timing and the details of your life are going to prove perfect. He's determined the conception of our life and he formed us in our mother's wombs. He wove us together, fashioning us so that we might be the perfect ones to fulfill the opportunities that he would bring to us, planned before the world was even put into order, that our call might be effective and our intimate communion with him might be genuine. He appointed every day of our lives before one of them came about, knowing the seasons of hardships that we would face. He has gone before us. He has traveled with us. And he pulls behind, lagging behind us, that he might be there with us at all times, providing all the things that we need. With his perfect timing, God is providing for us the perfect accomplishment of his glorious purposes of our lives, fulfilling every promise of the Bible that he has given. God is in the details and his timing is perfect. I wonder if Joseph and Mary understood the fullness of that when they were in such calamity, such hardship. I don't know what was going through their mind, I don't know whether they were wrestling with that or not when they couldn't find a suitable place for her to give birth. But I know this, they trusted their God. They heard his word. The proclamation had been given to them. The revelation was known to them and they were certain about that. So the hardship the couple experienced was genuine. But I can also note it paled in comparison to what their son would experience. 
There was no adequate place for them to lodge for which Mary would give birth to the Savior. But Jesus later would have no place to lay his head. Jesus was completely homeless. And he would be so that he might fulfill the purposes of God for his life. The people of Bethlehem turned Joseph and Mary away, but yet three decades later, they would despise and reject Jesus as well, calling for his crucifixion just outside of Jerusalem's gate. And although the Bible doesn't tell us where Mary delivered her baby, it does say that she laid him in a manger. Ancient tradition says that she actually had him in a cave which would make sense because many caves were used as a place of a stable where sheep and other animals could be brought in and be protected. It would be like the fold for the family, bringing them there. Oftentimes, as I mentioned last night, the Cataluma was a, a guest house, a guest room in the house that was provided in the upper level of a home. But the lower level could very well have been a cave in which the Animals were brought in, and it was more than likely there that Mary would have had Jesus there among the animals. You and I are a little bit taken back by the idea that she would have the Son of God in such a place. But mind you, later in his life, Jesus would take on the cherished title of Good Shepherd, one who would lay his life down for sheep. All the things that Mary and Joseph were experiencing and the difficulties they faced were magnified many times over later by Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior. So my friends, what I want us to think about this morning is that everything is in God's perfect timing and has purposefulness to it. Everything. Now look at the second thing that I want you to see. It's in your handout as well. Christmas proclaims the perfect message. And here's the message that was announced. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now the angel's sudden appearance certainly made the shepherds filled with fear, didn't it? But seeing the radiance of God's glory must have terrified them. It's one thing to see an angel. It's a whole nother thing to know and see the glory of God. And that's what they saw. The messenger may have provoked the fear in the shepherds, but the message was intended to bring great joy to them. Now, fear is a typical response when somebody sees an angel or encounters the manifestation of God's glory. And every occasion of the Bible, when that happened, there was great fear that was brought to bear being in the presence of holiness yields that kind of response. Isaiah saw the glorious throne of God. You remember what happened to him? He fell down and said, Woe am I, for I am undone. Peter finally understood that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And when he made that utterance in recognition of him, he fell down before Jesus saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. It's that kind of reaction that people have when they're in the midst of, of holiness and glory. So it's no wonder that the shepherds had great fear when the angel announced that the Messiah was there and the glory was around them. But the angel did not come to bring fear. Listen, he did not come to communicate the judgment of God. He came 
to communicate the grace of God, the good news that Christ had come and that they were not to fear. So receiving this glorious message in faith brings great joy. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to bring to us today. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 15, 16, and 18, it says this, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides with him and he in God. For we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. What is that perfect love? The perfect love is that Christ has come to bear our sin to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from our death, to rescue us from God's judgment against us, and that perfect love of Christ cast out fear. It's gone. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear standing before God. You don't have to fear standing amidst the glory of God when your faith is in Christ Jesus and you surrender your life, renounce all others, repent of your ways, and follow after him. That perfect love that he offers cast out fear. So fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So by grace through faith, Christ Jesus our Lord saves us from sin, judgment, and death. By the way, none of those things you can address on your own. You have to yield to Christ and let him address those things. So Jesus, our rescuer, cast out fear. Now sometimes we wrestle with this a little bit. Sometimes we have a, a, a fear of Christ and of God that is not healthy. Now listen, there's a reverence of God that is very healthy. There's a reverential fear of God that we ought to have for he is God and we are not. But he is telling us that in his perfect love, he wants fear as an emotion to be cast out. Suppose you and I were out in the Gulf of Mexico in July. That's a good thought, isn't it? But then a riptide, unbeknownst to us, begins to take us out. And we swim against that, but it does no good. And we find ourselves in short time far from the shore. And we go further and further out to the point now we're exhausted. Recognizing that we're in trouble, fear swells up in us and panic rises in us. And we stay out there a long time to the point that we begin to think that we're not going to make it. To the reality, we're not going to make it. But then we hear that thudding sound in the distance. And in the distance we see what appears to be a helicopter. And it's not just any helicopter. It's the Coast Guard. And the aviation technicians who are rescuers jump out of that helicopter and they begin to swim toward us. Now there is fear all around us. The situation caused fear to rise up in us and it has almost choked us. In that moment as they are swimming towards us, we would have a difficult time in that moment recognizing who and what all we are to be fearful of because fear is consuming us, but we are not to fear the rescuer. 
The rescuer is there to help cast out fear, to bring us to safety, to bring us to the great provision that he has come to provide. Sometimes in our salvation, we have the fear of death. We have a fear of judgment. We have a fear knowing those things are genuine and real in our life. And in the midst of all that emotion, we might even have a hard time figuring out just exactly where that fear ought to be applied. What the message of Christmas is, partially, you don't have to fear Jesus. Jesus has come as your rescuer. Though you have been fearful of judgment and death, you don't have to fear any longer, for he has come to provide for you. So the angel's words, fear not, are the words for us as well. Fear not, the rescuer, the deliverer has come, and his name is Jesus. That fear that we once had has now gone. Now look at the last point here. Christmas reveals God's perfect glory and peace. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So once the angel announced the Messiah's birth, suddenly there is a multitude of angels. Now the word there in the original language is plethros, and it, it is greater in number than you and I can imagine. It's not a hundred angels, it's not a thousand angels, it's not 10,000 angels. It's, it's a number of angels that is too large to give a number to. It's a grand count of angels. And in that, the, the shepherds are overwhelmed with what they are hearing and seeing. In the Old Testament, uh, Job describes the angelic host of, heavenly, of heaven, all the angelic host, singing with joy and shouting in joy at the creation of the world. They were there. And as they saw the Lord creating the, word, the world and universe, they just sing and shout for joy. And the number of those is this same count. It's the countless number of angelic beings. Now let me ask you, if the host of heaven praised God when heaven and earth was being created and everything in them, if they sang and shout for joy at that moment, what do you think they were doing when the creator suddenly became part of the creation? When he took on flesh. Can you imagine the sound and the rejoicing and the singing that was transpiring in that moment that the angels were, were giving in broadcasts in a heavenly stereo of broadcasts? So the Lord took on flesh via the supernatural and the natural. Supernatural in that the Holy Spirit brought the conception of Jesus into Mary. And natural because there was a process for which he would be formed in his mother's womb. Supernatural and natural is important for us to recognize because we need to know from the very start, he is altogether God and he is altogether man. He is the perfect mediator between God and man. 
And now these heavenly onlookers can't contain their enthusiasm. They erupt in glorious expressions of God shouting and praising unto him. And if the angels of heaven worshiped and praised God, when the Redeemer brought in the redemption there in flesh, what should you and I, the redeemed, be doing but echoing his grand glory and songs of his great grace? So if you're one in whom God's favor rests, who has received his salvation, then you too ought to proclaim his glory. You ought to shout for joy in the salvation and rest and peace that he has given to you. Christmas is the celebration of that. It is the song of the first advent. It is the offering of grace rather than the execution of justice and our rejoicing in that. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is Christmas. This is the reason why we sing and celebrate. So the heavenly hosts give us insight and instruction. Therefore, our song like theirs should be upward to the glory of God and it should be outward in proclamation to the world. So all the world knows that peace has come to rest. Now the musicians are going to move back into place and the singers are going to join them on stage. And as they do so, let me recap for a moment. Christmas, it comes at the most perfect time. And Christmas proclaims the perfect message that the good news of all time for all people, the Savior Christ is born. And Christmas reveals wonderfully God's perfect and glorious peace. 